T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Richard Freund. He is director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and the Greenberg Professor of Jewish History at the University of Hartford. Our annual visit with him. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So tell us what you have been up to this past year since we last spoke. Oh, this was a big year, very big year. Uh, for those of us uh, who went to hear the new Philip Glass uh, production uh, that was uh, done at the Asylum Hill uh, Church for the Church of the Annunciation, it was a premiere that was... Uh, Really very beautiful. It was composed by uh, Philip Glass. It was premiered. Uh, East Coast premiere was at uh, the Asylum Hill. And then it went to New York City to the Met. And uh, it's all about the Annunciation, where we have been excavating for the past uh, 10 years. Uh, the Church of the Annunciation is probably the one or two number two in, in Israel for the uh, most significant for Christians around the world. This is the place where... Uh, Mary, mother of Jesus, had this revelation where the angel Gabriel met her at the well. And inside the church, we've been uh, excavating, and we found that the 18th century church that everybody is praying in is really two stories above the original church that we found using ground-penetrating radar. And we've been excavating it every year. I'm going, I'm going now uh, back to Israel. Uh, to continue the excavation. So Philip Glass composed this wonderful piece that uh, people will play from uh, year to year, and it's about the the discovery of the uh, the original Church of the Annunciation. So you've been there for a decade now. What sort of artifacts have you found? Oh, you know, it, it's amazing how when you least expect it, you discover things that are... Uh, part of uh, original church work. So it has, for example, we started off. <laughs> we started off by finding the original floor, and the floor had a mosaic, and the mosaic is so beautiful, and it's got symbols that are just unusual for the fourth and fifth century. You see, if you look very closely at the mosaic, it looks like it's a cross, but it's a hidden cross because it's in the middle of this very unusual black and red and white uh, configuration. And so finding the floor was very, which what started the whole thing. And from there we found uh, coins and we found uh, ceramics and glass. And every single thing you have to then try to figure out what, what's it, what was its use in the church when 
this church was built, you know, 1,500 years ago. So uh, part of it is like a, uh, a puzzle that you're trying to put together. And so when we go back this, this year, this will be a very intense uh, season, we'll be able to put some of the last pieces together. And then uh, the church, uh, I mean, this is we're excavating the church, uh, the Annunciation, Greek Orthodox. There's also a Roman Catholic church right down the road from there that says they're the original uh, church of the Annunciation. But the Greek Orthodox, I think, is probably uh, the oldest of, of the two. And um, they're building a new church on top of the excavations. And they made they put a glass floor on top of the excavations so that visitors to this uh, church will be able to see the original excavations of the original church when they come to pray. And that's cool. That's cool. We were going to save this for later in the program, but since you were talking about the, the Church of the Annunciation Bring us back to the the first Christmas. What is supported by science and the artifacts, and and what isn't? You know, uh, I have to tell you that a lot of people for a, a good long time have questioned the some of the earliest narratives we have. You know, uh, why was what was Jesus of Nazareth uh, doing in Bethlehem for his birth? I mean, he's from Nazareth. Why is he going to Bethlehem, which is hundreds of miles away? And, you know, these kinds of things, we, we've now started to, to reveal the reasons for a lot of these things uh, through archaeology. So now we know that uh, there was a census uh, that was uh, the Roman census that took place uh, usually in the springtime, not necessarily in December, uh, when it was very cold and the roads were, were inundated. But uh, there was a census every year. And the family of, of, of uh, Mary and Joseph uh, was probably from uh, Judea in Bethlehem, in in the south of the country, and they may have been living in Nazareth because there's a lot of good jobs there, and they went back to their original town for the census. And of course, uh, she had gives birth to Jesus. The story of uh, uh, Christmas is is uh, very complicated. Also, I mean. Being born in, uh, on December 25th is, uh, is a very, very complicated thing since uh, if you're in um, uh, a manger, you're going to be very cold in, 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 in Judea at, at that time period. But um, what's more important is the, some elements like the, the Annunciation, which takes place six months before, nine months before where she's um, being told by the angel Gabriel that uh, Mary is going to have this child, Jesus. Uh, so the question is, do we have any evidence of the, the Holy Family being in a place like Nazareth in this time period? And now we have more evidence than we had before. Uh, there was For a, a long time, a lot of people said that there was very little evidence of... Um, uh, a settlement in this city of Nazareth, which is modern-day Israel in the north in Galilee. And uh, recently, we've had excavations of the Mar- Mary's Well, which we also did. And uh, we've discovered that the, these this public well has been there for thousands of years, and in the well were actually artifacts. And the artifacts tell us that there were people there because we find coins and we find ceramics and we find uh, glass and things that can be very specifically dated 
to the first century. So in general, archaeology is doing a pretty good job in developing this whole storyline of what is accurate in the Gospels about uh, the story of Christmas. Following Christmas, of course, is Three Kings Day. What evidence uh, is there to suggest uh, that occurred? Each one of these elements are obviously elements that were added to the, uh, the church calendar over years. So I'm not going to be taking each element in, in the church calendar. It, it is, it, what is very interesting, for example, is a lot of people think that the, the original symbol of Christianity, everybody thinks it's a cross. And this is the cross upon which Jesus was crucified. In fact, the earliest archaeological evidence of uh, Christianity, um, the symbols of Christianity was the fish. Because this is a, a symbol of the profession of the apostles that Jesus was recruiting at the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. And a lot of people think that uh, that, that fish uh, also may actually give us the original meaning of the cross. We look at the cross and we associate it, of course, with the crucifixion. But archaeological evidence from early Christianity and from this first and second century and into the third century context um, suggested that original cross may not be a cross at all. It may actually be an anchor. And some of the earliest crosses that are being used by Christians are not just crosses that look like crucifixes, meaning the place where Jesus died, but rather are anchors. And they have a little bottom to the, to the cross that sort of dropped off other people's uh, renderings of the cross. So this is the beauty of archaeology. Because what it provides us is a totally different resource for understanding the origins of uh, religion and history. And that's what's great about it. From year to year, I never know what we're going to discover. As you noted, the birth of Christ probably did not occur in December. Right. But there are important reasons why Christmas is on December 25th. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the idea that there is a holiday called the Holiday of Lights and this is a holiday that is filled with miracles. And this is a holiday that uh, really is about rebirth. All these are part of a very well-known Jewish holiday called Hanukkah that actually appears on the 25th day of the month. It's a, the lunar month, but not the solar month. But what happened is we think that this transference of the original Jewish holiday of lights, miracles, and of resurrection and, and great events to come actually occurred and that the early Christians wanted to preserve it. So what they did was they transferred many of the elements of Hanukkah into Christmas. And this is a very well-known technique. That, for example, we know that uh, Easter and Passover are very, very much connected. And um, we have these holidays like Pentecost that appears in June and, and that uh, Pentecost is, is associated also in the church. This is the beauty of religion, is that religion is not a static thing. And so these religions that were in contact with one another, Judaism that was transferred into Christianity by early Christians, always took elements that they knew were already there and gave them new meanings. And that's the reason why we think that uh, when we 
begin this holiday of Christmas, and it always begins, of course, in the evening before. That's exactly the way how all Jewish holidays begin, the evening before. And we are a little bit uh, suspicious of the fact that it occurs on the 25th of December because uh, the census, the Roman census that's mentioned uh, for the reasons why uh, Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the Roman census always took place in the springtime when it was nice and warm and the roads were dry. Uh, so the transference to this specific date is very, very important. And that's the reason why we think that maybe Christmas may be derived from Hanukkah. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Dr. Richard Freund. He is director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and the Greenberg Professor of Jewish History at the University of Hartford. Tell us the story of Matilda Olkin. Oh, and, and you know, uh, one of the things that the University of Hartford has become very well known for is that we take students into the field every summer, uh, sometimes in the winter, and we, we do excavations. So last year, uh, the, last year, in 2018 summer, we had this uh, opportunity to go and uh, we went back to Lithuania. We're excavating the great synagogue of Lithuania. And a group from northern Lithuania came to us and said, we have this very famous Jewish poet who was murdered by the Nazis, and we'd like to find where she's buried. We have eyewitnesses. Can you help us? So we've, we've sort of made this a cause celeb that we're able to go into the field using ground-penetrating radar. If we have eyewitnesses, we usually, we usually use, uh, for example, also photographs. We have uh, captured uh, Nazi photograph flyovers of most of the areas of, of Lithu places like Lithuania. And we then look to see if we can find it lost uh, synagogues, lost cemeteries, and in this case, uh, mass burials. Now, Matilda Olkin was the equivalent of the Anne Frank of Lithuania. She wrote, she was already a teenager, and she was murdered before she was 20 years old in the field, in the forest. And her diaries only came, were discovered in the last few years. And they were discovered under the great altar of a church where she lived. One of the uh, local Roman Catholic priests saved her diaries, hid them underneath the altar, and now they were being translated. And her poetry is the equivalent of one of the great poets that we know. And Lithuanians are very, very much interested in her poetry. She wrote in Lithuanian. But she is, in that sense, the, um, the quintessential figure for Lithuanians to understand the relationship between the Holocaust and their own national identity. So we went out this past summer with the eyewitnesses. And we found her mass burial, where she was uh, buried. Now, you know, I'll tell you, Anne Frank, um, who was a great diarist, younger, we don't know where she's buried. She died in, in an extermination camp. And no one knows where she is. But to find uh, Matilda Olkin uh, gave my students a great sense that they can go out and do something and... Uh, make a positive contribution towards the understanding of the Holocaust. And in this case, uh, this is they're making a documentary at the University of Hartford. 
students at the University of Hartford. I'm making a documentary about her. And um, it really is a, um, uh, a great use of how to educate people about how to use geoscience, because we're not digging up Matilda Olkin. We're marking her grave. So we're using geoscience, we're using archaeology, we're using history together to help educate students and I think the public about all these issues. So many of your discoveries have been made using ground-penetrating radar. That has really been a game-changer, hasn't it? Yeah, well, we, we use two techniques— um, ground penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography that basically gives us an MRI of the ground. And so we can then decide what's there before sticking a spade into the earth. And that's been a game changer for uh, a lot of different archaeology because <laughs> I hate to tell you the dirty secret of archaeology is archaeology is destructive. It's expensive. It's labor intensive. It's pretty ineffective. And it sometimes is insensitive. In the case of the, the Holocaust, it's just impossible to really uh, excavate most of these sites. We, we have to just find them, mark them, and so there's no development going on. But even in the case of the Church of the Annunciation, we don't want to rip up the floor of the Church of the Annunciation. We want to know where we can excavate and find the things without destroying uh, those things that are sacred, important to the people that are there. So we can work with ground penetrating radar in someone's business, office, house, uh, find what's there, tell them what's there, excavate in, in a pinpoint fashion, and then uh, extract artifacts and then close it up so people can go on with their business. And that's a big difference than the way archaeology was done 50 years ago. And you're going to be using this radar... Through ice. Oh, yes. This In January, I'm going back to Lithuania to find a ghost shtetl, a missing settlement that was inundated after the war by the Soviets, an entire Jewish village. After the people were murdered, the, the Soviets decided after the war that they needed to create a dam. They created the dam and they inundated the um, whole village. It's called Rumsiskis, and it's on the it's on the campus of the Living Museum of Lithuania, the Williamsburg of Lithuania. And we're going to go back. We're going to see this winter whether it's there. If it is there, I'm going to go back with divers to see what can be excavated out of that uh, village. Tell us what you have coming up uh, in addition to that next year. You've got a conference coming up at the University of Hartford. You're releasing a book. Yeah. And then you are looking for volunteers to maybe oh, go on an archaeology trip. For, you know, the most important part that I, I can say here is that uh, the University of Hartford has uh, programs where people can actually either go with us during the summer. If you're interested, you can uh, call my office and I'll tell you all about it. Um, or... If you want to come to a conference, on March 13th, we're going to have a, a, a conference called Holy Archaeology, where I'll be talking about our Nazareth excavations and our Yavna excavations, Bethsaida excavations. And uh, I teach a course, uh, Bible and Archaeology, at the University of Hartford. It's every Thursday uh, night in the spring. 
and you can come on a Thursday night and, and uh, study. Or you can go to the President's College. We have a President's College, the university, that has what I call the short course. For those people who are interested, they can contact the President's College. Um, teaching a three-part uh, intro to archaeology course for people who are interested. And most important, I have this new book coming out. So if you listen to this, you're very excited, but you don't want to go to the conferences, you don't want to go on excavations. The book is called Archaeology of the Holocaust. It's coming out in May, Roman and Littlefield, and it will be a game changer, I think, for a lot of people because uh, it teaches you about how this non-invasive archaeology can lead us to understand a lot more than the more invasive archaeology that everybody's more familiar with. When do you make the decision to go from the non-invasive archaeology to actually excavating? Well, for example, I mean, we worked at this great synagogue of, um, of Vilna for three years uh, just doing um, uh, non-invasive materials and then doing some pinpoint archaeology. And then we decided that we we needed to do full-scale excavations of the place. There are no people buried there. It is just the great synagogue of Vilna. It was, for Jews, the equivalent of the Vatican. It was the size of two football fields, and it was buried underneath an elementary school in downtown Vilnius in Lithuania. So, you know, we worked with the the municipality, with the government. They allowed us to... uh, uh, do some small excavation, but after we took out 100,000 artifacts, they decided to close the school, and now we're excavating the entire great synagogue. So sometimes you start small, you do non-invasive, and it does lead to bigger things. We started out non-invasively at the uh, Church of the Annunciation, and what it led to was full-scale excavations, and now they're building a church on top of our excavations, and they put a glass floor on top of our excavations. So people who come into this new Church of the Annunciation will be able to see what it is that we've excavated, to see the original church. What level of interest among today's college students is there in archaeology? Would you say it's growing? Or Yeah, you know, I have to say, I've been teaching for 35 years, uh, and I'm, I take students out to the field. A lot of people are very down on millennials, and they're very down on uh, Generation Z, because they, don't, they say, ah, they don't want to read books. But I ha- can say, having done this now for 35 years, that this is the best generation of students in the field that I've ever had. When you take them out to the field where they can smell it, they can taste it, they can experience it, this is what millennials want to do. They don't want to read about it in a book. They want to discover it for themselves. And they are the best, the most curious generation of students that I've had. Then you can take them back to the classroom afterwards, and they're very interested about reading about it. But you first got to take them by the hand into the field where they can experience it for themselves. And so I got great hopes because of that. Make another pitch for your trip this summer. Oh, so if you want to go and if you want to even do a taste of archaeology tour, uh, you call me at the University of Hartford, 860-768-4022, or contact us at uh, Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Hartford uh, at our website. Contact me. We're leaving in July for a week of digging 
a week of digging in Lithuania and a week of, of digging in our excavations in Greece. So you can get a taste of archaeology. How hard are you going to put these people to work? I mean, oh, are you going to be digging? Or? I want to tell you, the one thing that, that's very important is my oldest digger was 90 years old. And he kept telling me, I don't know if I can do this. I said, George, do you like the garden? I said, yes, I like the garden. He says, but I can only get down. I can't get up. I said, I got 18 to 22-year-olds that will get you up. <laughs> he is Richard Freund, director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies and the Greenberg Professor of Jewish History at the University of Hartford. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T Mobile.com.